All right, guys, so uh, we've been going through a series called Love Stories where we are learning uh, through the scriptures that it is one big story of God's love for humanity, and we ourselves find ourselves in that story. It's so interesting um, that the Bible opens and closes uh, with a story about a wedding. Um, so as we begin to think about how our romantic lives intertwine with God's love story, um, it's important for us to understand these things. But just to give us some traction for kind of where we're going tonight, uh, I kind of want to tell you guys a story. So um, there comes a moment in every young adult's life, and I'm convinced that almost everybody unanimous, unanimously experiences this in their young adult years, that becomes a defining moment in your life. It is a fulfilling moment. It is a moment where you honestly feel really good about yourself. It's a moment uh, where you truly realize like, wow, I am a hero. I am making a difference in the world. And that moment is when your grandparent calls you for tech support because they cannot turn on a digital device. That is that moment. I remember whenever my precious grandmother uh, went out and bought herself a new computer. Um, and she went from a Windows 98 gateway desktop computer to a 2014 MacBook Pro 15-inch i7 processor for you guys that that means something to. All right, guys, this is the Ferrari of Apple computers that we're talking about. And I am telling you guys, we might as well have been building a house on Mars because she was amazed by this thing. I can remember unboxing it, setting it up, and asking her, like, hey, like, what are you going to do with this thing? Because I had a MacBook. It wasn't that nice. But, like, man, I use my MacBook for all kinds of stuff at this point in my life. And she's like, man, I'm probably going to use it just to, like, get on Facebook, like, play some solitaire. And then, like, I showed her what Spotify was, and she was like, whoa, like, this is amazing. You're telling me that all of this music is on here for free, and you just have to listen to ads? I'm like, yeah, grandmother, as much Jimmy Buffett as you want on-demand access. I mean, I'm telling you guys, it was like, I mean, forget like what Elon Musk is doing with Tesla. Like this for her was that moment of like, this is incredible. But I do remember thinking like, it is a little bit ironic that you have this super powerful computer and it's being really, really underutilized. <laughs> really, really underutilized. And the thing is, guys, when we don't understand what something is for, when we don't understand what something was created for, at minimum, we underutilize it. And at maximum, we abuse it. And sometimes when we don't understand what something is for, we come into it with an unspoken expectation. And when that expectation isn't met, it leads to disappointment. In jobs, what this looks like is, man, like I got the wrong job. Like I got to quit until I find the right job. And in marriage, this looks like, man, I got the wrong spouse. Maybe I should get a divorce. Maybe I should go find someone else, guys. In fact, um, maybe like one of the best things that we could probably do is just start to shed some light on what marriage is really like and adjusting our expectation to something realistic. So I was thinking of the best way to try to communicate this, and there's no better way to communicate information than through memes. So I've got a few memes for you of the Twitter variety uh, to show you guys coming on screen, and we're going to look at these um, together. So uh, this first one is just a guy talking about uh, marriage, and he says, there are two kinds of people. The ones that pack six days before a trip and the ones that wake up day of and realize they need to do a load of laundry and they marry each other. That is a very, very, very real thing. Second one, in 34 years on this planet, I've learned one very important lesson that I'm going to pass on to you fellas. She can eat your fries. You cannot eat her fries. It's very, very real. Very real. Uh, this, one, this one really cracked me up. Uh, this is just for, you know, people who are sticklers on budgeting. 
Uh, my husband says, we we're over on the groceries last month. Me, how did that happen? Him, well, we spent like $100 on ice cream sandwiches. Me, dot, dot, dot. Hmm. Babe, that's a really bad. Me, I hate this place and it sucks here. Like, guys, this is like what really marriage is about. It's things like that. It's, it's, it's the ordinary, it's the mundane, but it's also where we get our idea of marriage because most often where we think marriage is, the idea comes from Hallmark movies and Netflix sitcoms. And the thing about Hollywood is Hollywood makes so much money off painting you an unrealistic picture of what life is like. So uh, I figured that this was the best way to show that to you guys. So tonight we've got to discover, guys, what God created marriage for. And I think we have to do this by opening up to the first few pages of the Bible to see the very first marriage and how God created this as a paradigm for us to follow. It's not just some random story that is just placed in there, but it's actually an example that we still need to follow today. So um, before we go any further, I just want you guys to pray with me. God, we thank you so much for our ability, God, just to come in here and to worship uh, with you. And Lord, I just pray um, tonight, God, that you would speak through me. God, and I know that there are so many of us uh, who walked in here tonight, God, and uh, we are tired already at the beginning of the work week, and, and maybe we're carrying something heavy in here from the weekend, God. And I just pray that right now we can put all of that stuff, God, just down for a minute. Lord, and we can realign our hearts and our minds around you. We can realign our spirits and our focus around you. And we can begin, Lord, to look and see what you have for us tonight. God, just in the opening pages of the Bible, Lord, I pray that you, God, would step in for me and that I would step out of the way. God, we love you so much. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want you guys to flip, tap your way over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 7. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, you can always follow along on screen with me here tonight. You guys that are watching online, you guys should be able to see as well. But So the opening pages of the Bible uh, begin with God literally speaking and singing creation into existence, bringing order to the mass chaos of the universe, bringing it into alignment where life can flourish. That is Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1, you see the whole world being created on a massive universal scale. But then when you flip over to Genesis chapter 2, we see it zoom in on the garden. And it begins to zoom in on the first humans, guys. And this is so, so important. So as we read along this passage tonight, I need you guys to read with me with an imaginative mind and pay really close attention to the details because here's what happens often when we're reading the Bible is we're just reading through it super, super fast, super quick because we're just trying to get it done. We're just trying to check it off and we miss out on the richness of the detail of it. Scripture is designed for you to read slow, for you to talk about it with other people, for you to roll it around in your mind and learn from it as you go. So here we go. Genesis chapter two, verse seven says this, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So some of your Bibles might say Adam here instead of man, depending on which translation that you're reading. That's because the Hebrew word for man is Adamah. It's very similar to the Hebrew word for dirt, which is where Adam gets his name Adam. And as we'll see later, this is going to be really important. Now, some of you ladies in here are like, yes. All men 100% are dirt. I already like where this sermon is going, and I'm telling you, do not do that. Stop. Like We're just going to show some love and grace tonight, but we're going to keep reading this, and we're going to see what this man that God has created does next. In verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God has... 
planted a garden in the east and Eden. There he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were trees of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, from where it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It's, it winds through the entire land of Havala, where there is gold. In parenthetical, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Verse 13, the name of the second river is the Gahan. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And in the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, what do all of these random details mean? It's more than just a geography lesson. First of all, this is the place where Adam lives. And this place is massive, massive. Scholars kind of go back and forth debating on really how big the Garden of Eden was. But basically, it ranges from people saying it was a few hundred square miles wide to maybe even stretching throughout an entire continent. The point is, it was huge, huge, and it was teeming with wildlife, with raw materials to build with. That's the point about that, pat, that little parenthetical statement where it says um, there was gold and resin and onyx. It, there's, there's raw materials for building present, and most importantly, there is life-giving water that's flowing out from the center of the garden where the tree of life was, where God's present was. There is water flowing out from that, stretching all throughout the world, and Adam has a big, big job in front of him. Let's keep going. In verse 15, it says, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a suitable helper for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. Notice that God formed Eve, not from Adam's head that is above him so that he would be, she would be above him, not from his feet so she would be below him, but from his side as his equal. Even the word helper here, it doesn't mean something like how we would think of like an employee-boss relationship, which is unfortunately how like modern readers, we superimpose that understanding onto the text, and it's not there. The word ezer uh, is in Hebrew means helper, and it refers to the type of help that you call out for, like literally when you are dying. When you are in desperate, desperate need of help and you're crying out for help, that is the type of help that Ezer is trying to communicate to us. It can even be used in like a military term, like whenever you are under attack and you are calling for help. This is the type of help that God is bringing for Adam. 
Uh, and Adam responds accordingly because this is not lightweight stuff. You ever get so happy in life that you just can't help but sing? That's what, what Adam does next. And that's why in your Bibles it's written in prose because he responds, the man said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, before you start thinking, like, two naked people in a big garden, they don't feel weird about each other, like, this feels like some kind of jacked up, like, naked and afraid episode. What does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with me? How is this going to help me be better at dating? How is this going to help me not get my heart broken all of the time? Uh, I think that there is something we got to realize, that this is more than just a fun story of God explaining to us where we came from and where all the animals got their names and the origin of humanity. But God instituted the first marriage. And as we look through the details of this story, now that we've got to read it um, through right here, I think we're going to notice five things, five very important characteristics that are an example for all future marriages. So if you're taking notes, this is a good time to start. And as we go through these five things, I want you to try to think about like, man, does this reflect my life? Like, I, can I see all five of these things in my life? Are these five things that I expect out of dating? Is this part of my expectations? Because here's the reality is so many of us as young adults, our only thing that we are looking for out of a relationship, the only thing that we're looking for out of, out of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or eventually someone to marry is just someone that we think is hot and someone that we think is fun. And it's usually in that order. And I'm not saying that that thing is necessarily wrong, but I'm saying that I think that we have to look even further. We have to look even deeper. So the first thing that we can see in this story is friendship. God created marriage for friendship. Verse 18 says that it is not good for man to be alone. Now, up until this point, if you've been reading since the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, Everything God has done, he has ended it by saying, and it was good. So guys, think, this is long before Gutenberg's printing press. This is long before Bill Gates invented Microsoft Word. If you wanted to emphasize something in antiquity, you repeated it over and over and over. There's no bold. There's no underline. There's no change in the color of text to highlight it. Like, you just repeat it. That's the way that they would wrote. So when God says something isn't good, it's like, record scratch. Like, wait, wait, something's not good? Everything up until this point has been good. People reading this for the first time, this would have drawn their attention to exactly what is going, along, uh, going on. Uh, God intended for marriage to be an outlet where you experience deep, deep openness with another human being, to be emotionally naked before them and then before you, seeing all the flaws that you have in your life, the way that you fail, the way that you treat others, all of your insecurities, all of those things, and vice versa. You see that about them, they see that about you. Um, even in the wedding ceremony where God uses the phrase, they became one flesh, literally in Hebrew, that means that God fused them together at the deepest possible levels. Later in the Bible, they use the Hebrew word aloop, which means companion or best friend. It's the kind of friendship um, that God desires for you to see. It's the kind of friend that knows you better than your own mother. This is the level of friendship that God is talking about. Um, and this is the level of friendship that God desires for your marriage. So why, why would God create marriage in this way? It's because God himself exists in a deep web of relationships inside the Trinity, and we are made in God's image. So listen, my point is this, is you were made to be in relationship with other people. 
You were made to experience deep friendships with other people. And marriage isn't the only way to experience deep friendships. Jesus, Paul, so many other people in Scripture have deep, life-giving, shaping friendship. The only point I'm trying to make here with this is for those of us who do get married, you should be best friends with your spouse. And you should have other friendships that speak into your life along the way that surround your dating and that surround your marriage. And here's another thing about friendships is friends are honest with each other and friends are also receptive and able to speak into each other's lives, meaning that you can have a deep, tough conversation with them and you can count on the fact that they're not going to blow up, that they're not going to walk out, that they're not going to cold shoulder and get out of the situation. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, meaning a true friend is someone that you can be so honest with that even though it might hurt them in the moment, it's the kind of conversation that leads you both to getting better in the long run. It's the kind of conversation where you can bring up serious red flags, serious things that are hurting you, and that you can begin to work through it. Some of us, we date people where honesty is impossible. We date people where we can, we just kind of nod and like brush off things that are really serious problems, really serious issues, because I don't feel like I can be honest with that person. If you can't do that, you can't be friends with that person. And if you can't be friends with them, you shouldn't date them, because in marriage, you're designed to experience the deepest, deepest friendship that you possibly can. Guys, and some of us in here, we have no community in our life outside of that. Some of us in here, we have no community in our life that will speak levels of honesty into our lives and say, hey, you have this going on in your life, or I see this, and we need to work together to address that, because otherwise, if we don't do that, you could destroy your marriage before you even go on the first date. Guys, I'm telling you, community, so important, so important to have that level of friendship around you. Some of us, the friends we have are not really our friends because they won't speak realness. They will not speak authentically into our lives. The second thing that we see in this is flourishing. God created marriage for human flourishing. In verse 15, it said, God put man in the garden to work and to take care of it. The word work in Hebrew means to bring something into flourishing. It doesn't mean to overwork it or to abuse it or any of those negative feelings that um, pop up in your mind when you hear the word work. No, God created work as something that is supposed to help all of humanity flourish for the world to be a better place. And the reason that work sucks is because of sin. It's the toil that makes it terrible. It is not the work in and of itself, guys. Literally, what we should be seeking to do in our work every single day is we should be helping humanity flourish in some way by making life better and easier for other humans. Guys, marry someone who is making their corner of the world flourish and has plans to keep going. Who has plans to keep seeing it through. Don't marry someone who looks at work as their way to step on whoever it is that they need to step on so they can make a lot of money. Because if they step on others on the way to the top, if they have to step on you to get there, they'll step on you too. Like they're showing you something. They're communicating to you who they really are through their action, guys. Don't marry someone who has no plans for their life. Don't marry someone who has no 
target, guys. So many people, when they open the New Testament, they hate the word submission that they see when they get to passages like Ephesians chapter 5. They hate that it says, wives submit to husbands as husbands submit to the Lord. They hate that. But what I say is, you know, everyone in here has the free choice to choose who you submit to. So submit to someone worthy of submission. Don't marry someone who has zero direction for their life, but wow, gosh, they're just so attractive. Don't do that. Don't marry someone who has no plans to help you along the way. Marry someone that you can align with in making the world flourish. That doesn't mean that you have to have the same job. That doesn't mean you have to be in the same career field. That doesn't mean that you have to be rich and you have to make a lot of money. It means that you find someone that you can help and support along the way and them making their part of the world flourish. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. Third thing. Sexuality. God created marriage for sexuality. Verse 25 says they were both naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. Earlier I made a, you know, a joke about the show Naked and Afraid, but you know what's serious about the text is neither Adam or Eve were afraid here. Uh, they were able to experience a level of complete vulnerability with someone, and it was really, really good. No tears. No heart-wrenching heartbreaks, no feelings of being used or feelings of being betrayed. And I know some of us in here, in one way or another, we've gone outside the paradigm that's been expressed here. And I don't have to convince you that it's probably left you with feelings of negative emotions. It's left you with baggage, with bondage. You feel like you've got some wounds, you've got some images in your mind that play over and over that you just feel like you can't get over. You've got some nights in your head that you just feel like that you can't forget. Listen, my goal in saying this is not to shame you. My goal is to tell you Jesus still loves you. Jesus still has a plan for you. Jesus can restore your life. And he believes in his ability to restore you to the point that he went to the cross and died in your place so you might have the opportunity to step into that restoration. He died so that you might have that choice, that option to make that possible. So if you find yourself in here right now just sitting in the brokenness over that turn to Jesus, man, let him reassemble your life. Let him put the pieces back together the way that it was supposed to be, guys. Marriage is the area where sexuality is supposed to be expressed. It's a powerful, powerful tool to bring you into alignment with your spouse when used in the right context. In the right context, it allows the flesh and the spirit to in intermingle and bring alignment between two people who are married. It is a powerful, powerful tool when used in the right context, and it is a very destructive one when it isn't used in the right context. Um, there was a guy that used to work for my dad. For those of you who don't know, my, my dad's uh, been in construction most of my life, and there was a guy named Joseph uh, that worked for my dad. Uh, and he worked for him for a few years. He was a really, really good carpenter. Um, and anybody in here has ever built anything before, or maybe even if you've watched people build stuff, on TV, you'll know that there is a tool that almost every single building project calls for, or at least makes it a lot easier, and it's called a table saw. All right, so a table saw just allows you to quickly 
cut lumber, you can cut other things with it as well, but you can cut it to exact measurements. If you need like a piece angled on the end, you can turn and adjust it, and it has all of these things on it to uh, help you do that and help you use um, it to produce things that will help you get through the project easier. Table saw makes the whole project go much faster whenever you know how to use it properly. Um, but the thing about a table saw is, is, you know, if you can imagine there's a table in front of me like this, is you take the material, you slide it across, the saw's right here, and when you're ready to cut, you bring it down and it cuts, and then you move on. So this guy, Joseph, one day, they're like right in the middle of working on a project, and he's really, really good. So he's, you know, cutting his way through, and he's talking to someone, but he, he begins to get kind of careless. He takes a piece of lumber, slides it through, cuts through all three of these fingers right here, threw his fingers down into the table. His fingers go flying across the thing to which we run over, grab them, put them in a plastic bag, and go to the ER. And that was the last day that Joseph ever made anything with a table saw. And I am telling you that for this. When tools are used recklessly, especially powerful tools, it leads to destruction. And it can lead to maiming your life. And it can lead to decisions where, yeah, you might get a little better, but you're always going to be carrying that, that wound. It might scar over. You might be able to regain use of it. Maybe you won't. I don't know. The point is, is it is something very strong, very powerful, and not something to be reckless with and not something to play with. But when used correctly, it can bring flourishing to life. It can make your life better. It can make other people's lives around you better. Four things, family, family. 128 says, be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. So God's plan for family is inside the safety of marriage. And I don't have to explain to some of you how destructive for someone's life it is to have a rough family life at home how the long-term damage of divorce affects kids and how it affects two former people who were married to each other. I don't have to explain to many of you because just like me, you lived through that. And you continue to live through that almost every day. Every holiday that you drive back home, every Thanksgiving for the past 5, 10, 15 years, there's still pain every time you pick up the phone or you walk through the door. Guys, don't buy into culture that tells you, hey, yeah, just get married, and then if, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can just get divorced. It just makes it worse for everybody that's caught in that, and there's always crossfire, and there's always shrapnel, and it never, never makes it better. It never makes it easier. Don't buy into that. Don't marry someone who doesn't realize the permanency of marriage. You know, there's really two camps, I think, that it comes to when it comes to kids. One, the first camp is that kids are a nuisance. They're a nuisance to my life, and there's something to be avoided, or at the very least, there's something to be tolerated. It's like sex, sure, marriage, maybe, kids, nah, they're like collateral damage, I guess, in the whole, the whole process of what we're trying to do. And it's that mindset and that mentality why tonight one out of three kids are going to go to bed without a dad in their house. Guys, we can turn that stat around. We can make that stat no longer accurate. If we embrace 
what we change, if we can embrace that we can be the change that families need to see in the future for our families, we can do that. And we can also in turn become fathers to the fatherless and mothers to the motherless. We can turn that around if we embrace the truth that is in Scripture. The other camp is really that kids are idols. Kids are idols. For, for parents, um, you know, for our parents' generation, it was probably, you know, sitcoms and like Martha Stewart that had embedded them, that into us. For us, it's probably more like trying to be the picture-perfect Instagram mom or really trying to be like Chip and Joanna Gaines or something like that, trying to raise this picture-perfect family and leaving your spouse in the dust to disrupt um, everything. And that disrupts the order that God created us for. And many of you in here have probably lived through that disaster too. The disaster of what it is to watch your parents keep it together for the kids, where it feels like everything is just a shell of what it should be and everything feels like it's a lie, guys. Great parents don't happen by accident. You becoming a great father, you becoming a great mother will not happen by accident. It starts with formation now. So don't marry the guy who doesn't believe what Psalm 127 says when it says children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hand. Is look for the guy who believes in discipling and raising up the next generation to lead the church. Look for the girl who is kind and nurturing to kids now, not someone who is obsessed with building a postable life. Last thing, fifth thing. God created marriage for recreation. Recreation. Guys, we've been focusing on the goodness of Genesis chapter 2. But we all know it gets broken up in chapter 3. It all gets ruined. Adam and Eve fall into deception by the enemy. They decide that they know better than God. Then boom, what's perfect disappears. And it becomes marked by distrust, anger, blame shifting, shouting, despair. Sounds like a lot of marriages today. But God, who is rich in mercy, made a plan for redemption. See, marriage is a means to an end. It is about two people who are pursuing God to come together to do more for the kingdom of God than they could do apart. Two people who are individually seeking first the kingdom of God. Two people who are already making disciples long before they go on date one. Two people who are being formed by the Holy Spirit and into someone who is loving, someone who is peaceful, someone who is patient, someone who is kind, and someone who is faithful. Two people who together are seeking to undo the evil and suffering in the world by following Jesus before they ever pursue anyone else. Two people who can look across the yard, across the road at their neighbor and say, I love you because you were made in the image of God. Jesus died for me. Two people who are willing to invite others into their home and to use their table as a meeting place to meet with the world. Two people who are doing that long before they ever begin to talk to each other. Guys, find someone who's doing that and pursue them. You will not be disappointed. And I'm not saying it's going to be easier. I'm not saying that you're not going to have to go through your own relational hurdles, but I will say that you're going to be able to work through things much more efficiently with someone who understands how to forgive someone when they do wrong because they understand how much Jesus has forgiven them. 
Guys, do not start dating someone in hopes that, oh, you know, maybe they'll start following Jesus later. Maybe they'll start taking church serious later. Maybe they'll start doing these things later. Do not start dating someone because you think they will make you happy. Guys, happiness is the byproduct of a marriage, of two people following Jesus. It is not the point. Happiness is the afterclap of the individual pursuing the most joyous being in existence on their own. Here's what you want. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Let us run the race set before us with endurance. And as you begin to run and pursue Jesus and go after him, you're going to notice that just like at the beginning of the race, there's a lot of people running this race. And the closer you get to Jesus, the harder that you run after him, you're going to start looking to side to side, and you're going to notice there's less and less people, the further and the harder that you run. But the further and harder you run towards God, you're going to start noticing, hey, you're running the same place as I am. You're going the same direction as me. You're pursuing the same love that I am. Do you want to run with me? Do you want to join with me and continue to run towards Jesus together? And guys, I'm not just telling you this because I think this is fluffy language. Like, I so believe this. I had this engaged inside my, I had this engraved inside my wife's engagement ring. That is how deeply that I believe this. I'm not just saying that to you as fluffy language. Like, this is a core part of who we are, guys. That is how hard I believe this. So here's what we're going to do. I want you guys all to bow with me. And can you just pray right now that wherever you are in that, that your life would be marked by those things, that your life would be marked by pursuing Jesus. Would you just pray, God, wherever it is that I'm falling short in my pursuit of you, whatever things that I need to repent of, whatever things that I need to leave at your feet, would you just do that right now? Lastly, would you just pray, God, what's my next step? Because I want to pursue you before I pursue anyone else. God, is my next step committing my life to you? Is my next step going all in through baptism? Is it, is it circling up with other people, getting in a group? God, is it giving back to the church through serving? Just pray, just ask God, what's my next step? Oh,